0: Second Thessalonians chapter three. We'll look at the first five verses. In the 1990s, a scrawny kid at Bryant Jr. High made the basketball team. He wasn't the tallest, he wasn't the most athletic, he wasn't the most talented. I can say that because that scrawny kid was me. But what he did have was love for basketball. I was the kid that wore basketball shorts to school every day not just for basketball practice. In classes, I had basketball shorts on so that at lunch I could go play basketball. I didn't care that I was sweaty the rest of the day and stinky the rest of the day. I loved basketball that much. Well, that love for the game meant that I was okay with running at practice. It meant okay that I I was okay with the weightlifting. I was okay with giving up some Saturday mornings to have basketball practice when there were more talented kids that quit. They didn't love it like I did. Love is an amazing motivator. That's not the only motivator, but I think it would be right to say that love is the highest motivator. When you love something... You don't have to worry about your motives, and you don't have to worry about quitting. If we apply that to serving God, think about the religious leaders during Jesus' day. They thought they were serving God, or they tried to serve God, but it became this cold and calculated checklist. They followed this list of do's and don'ts in a hypocritical fashion, just in order to be seen by other people. Instead of obeying out of love for God, Jesus condemned them. In fact, if you read the Gospels, the harshest words Jesus ever spoke were directed towards religious leaders for their hypocrisy. Read Matthew 23 when you get a chance. He denounced them for their legalism and their hypocrisy. If you try to serve God by keeping a checklist, serve God because you want to be seen by others... Not only are you not pleasing God anyway, it'll get old. And it will wear you out. And when things are not easy, and when things are not simple, if there's some sacrifice required, you'll quit. Think about the Thessalonian church. Things were never easy and simple for them. All they knew was persecution, ostracism, criticism. And if they were going to continue to obey as they had done so far, the Apostle Paul knew that they would need both love and endurance. Because without love, obeying God would turn into legalism and hypocrisy. And without endurance, their obedience would have no staying power. They'd just quit. So this morning, I want us to understand that love and endurance are necessary to keep obeying God, especially during tough times. Let's look at the first five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul wrote, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. These first two verses of the chapter are essentially a multi-layered prayer request from Paul. He technically commands them to pray for him and his team but don't think of this as some sort of harsh command. He's not you know, wagging his finger at them. It is Paul's desire uh, that they pray for him, but it is worded as a command, and I think that is important. If we're not praying for one another, we are neglecting a responsibility that we have. Neglecting prayer is disobedient. So pray for one another. It's also something to take comfort in here that the great Apostle Paul, arguably the best missionary, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, he requested prayer for himself. There is no believer in the world who is so mature, so, so blameless, so bold, so together that he or she doesn't need prayer. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray for one another. I mentioned this was this multi-layered prayer request though. So as as Paul desired them to pray for him and his missionary team, there there's two results or two outcomes and notice the first one has to do with the gospel. He said that he said pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. That the word of the Lord may have free course. Your translation may say speed ahead or speed rapidly instead of free course here. And it's, it's a great translation because this was actually an athletic word. It literally meant to run. This is a running word. It was used when Peter and John ran to the tomb on resurrection morning because the women told them somebody has stolen the body of Jesus. So Peter and John ran to the tomb. It's this same word. And that's That's Paul's desire for the gospel message or for the word of the Lord. He he desires it to be able to run quickly through the world. And as it spreads, as it runs, the hopeful result is that it will be glorified. Or your translation may say, be honored. It simply means that when people hear the message, they would believe it and then praise it, glorify it. Honor it for what it is. The message of Jesus Christ is God's message of salvation. It's a praiseworthy message. We'll come back to the end of verse 1 in just a minute. But let's look at the end of verse 2. We see this sort of second layer of the prayer request or the second outcome. And it specifically involves Paul and his missionary team. He wants them to pray so that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. Paul's not describing two different groups of people here, wicked and unreasonable. They work together. Wicked is just your common word for evil or bad or wicked. But unreasonable is not as common. The word literally means out of place. It's something that's not where it ought to be. The only other two times in the New Testament it was used by Luke, and they're kind of interesting places they were used. You remember when Jesus was crucified and there were two thieves on either side of him? One of the thieves used this word to proclaim Jesus' innocence. He said, We receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man, speaking of Jesus, hath done nothing amiss. He's done nothing out of place. He's, He's done nothing wrong. And the other time that Luke used this word was late in the book of Acts, you remember the story where Paul was bitten by a venomous snake? And everybody assumed he's either going to swell up like, you know, somebody that ate shellfish they're allergic to, or, or maybe just drop over dead. But Luke wrote that no harm came to him. Nothing out of place happened to him. No, nothing out of the ordinary happened to Paul, even though a viper bit him. That's the idea of this work, is someone is out of place Uh, Not where they're supposed to be. So here, these are opponents of the gospel who we could say they're out of place spiritually, ethically, morally. They are not where God wants them to be. Not to mix terminologies, but they were lost. Pun intended. People who are wicked and unreasonable, who are wicked and out of place spiritually... They work to hinder the gospel and hurt those who spread it, and that still happens today. Still does. Paul prayed that he and his missionary team would be delivered from people like that. So there's, there's a couple of things I want to point out about this prayer request because it's, it's pretty fascinating when we, when we know some just overarching teachings of the Bible and also know about Paul And he's asking that they be delivered from these sorts of people. Well, first of all, when we're persecuted for Christ's sake, we're blessed. Jesus taught that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He went on to say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus said, "Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." So we understand that physical persecution can actually result in spiritual blessings. So even persecution has benefits. And secondly, it's this prayer request is interesting because of what we know about Paul. Was he a fair-weather missionary? Was he a coward? Was Paul one of those guys that quit when it got tough? Not at all. And they knew that. When he was beaten and in, imprisoned in Philippi, what did he do once he was released? He marched straight to Thessalonica and started preaching the gospel there. When the Jews, uh, when the unbelieving Jews kicked him out of the synagogue, and stirred up a mob of people against the Christians in the city, and Paul had to be snuck out of town for his safety, did he quit? No, he marched straight to Berea, and he started preaching there. Persecution never stopped Paul from preaching. But with all of that being said, it was still not wrong for Paul and the Thessalonians to petition God for deliverance from the enemies of the gospel. Just think from a very logical standpoint. If Paul were imprisoned, there's only so much he can do from prison. It's okay for us to pray as well. For God to rescue us from those who would do us harm. For those who do our church harm. We better pray for God to continue to grant us the religious freedom that we have enjoyed in our country for our entire lives. But we also need the understanding that if God chooses not to deliver us, and we're called to suffer for him instead, that does not give us an excuse to quit because the gospel is still powerful. God can still accomplish his purposes and he will reward us for our faithfulness. And the same was true for Paul. It made me think of something he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul wrote, I'm suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. This world can persecute Christians. This world can lock them up. But this world cannot stop God. If I'm ever locked up one day for, quote, hate speech, because I preach the Bible and I preach Jesus is the only Savior, this world hasn't locked up the gospel If there are armed men who come and guard our doors one day and refuse to let us in this building to worship, we can go to a field and worship. This world cannot stop God. And so the gospel message cannot be arrested even if its messengers are. The Thessalonians knew that. Notice back in verse 1, I said we come back to it in a minute. At the end of the verse, even as it is with you. Their experience was important Remember, when they heard the gospel, it was not without pressure. Pretty soon after Paul was in the city, he was kicked out of the synagogue. The unbelieving Jews stirred up that mob, and he had to be snuck out of the city. Yet they believed the gospel. It was working powerfully among them and in their lives in spite of all that trouble. And so their own experience was a tangible reminder of how the gospel can run And how it can be honored even when men try to stop it. So the gospel running does not necessarily imply that there are no obstacles in front of it. An athlete can run on a track where there are hurdles. Maybe that's why Paul prayed for the gospel's rapid spread even before he prayed for his own deliverance. The first result was that the gospel spread. Next. Pray that we're delivered. I think it's obvious, though, that Paul's freedom and the gospel spread were associated, right? Again, if he's locked up, there's only so much he can do. He is the main uh, missionary working to establish churches, especially among the Gentiles at that point. But even if he were arrested, because not every man has faith, God's work wouldn't stop. Which leads us into verse 3, which is a great verse. On the heels of Paul mentioning that there are unreasonable and wicked men who don't have faith in God is the encouraging statement in verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. The word order in the original language here emphasizes the faithfulness here. You could preach an entire sermon on this phrase, the Lord is faithful. You could have a, maybe you could have a whole seminary class on this phrase. I hope you know that God is trustworthy. You can always rely on Him. He will never lie. It's not possible for God to lie, the Bible says. He will never let you down. He will never forget what He said. He will never lack the power to follow through with a promise He's made. He is faithful. When we had our... Thanksgiving testimonial service this past Tuesday, I think this sort of turned out to be the theme. We had quite a few people who shared, and it was, it was a blessing, and of all the people who shared, there were not two stories the same. Not, not one of us ha- have the identical backstory that brought us here. We have different backgrounds, different experiences, different failures, different triumphs. But the one thread running through all our lives is that God is faithful. And in this context specifically, the Lord's faithfulness uh, would result in two things for the Thessalonians. Notice he says the Lord is faithful in verse 3, who shall establish you. Look back at verse 17 of chapter 2 and you'll see the same word. That's word for establish. Your translation may say established or strengthened or something along those lines. This was that word that described how a rainbow was suspended in midair, but it seemed to be supported by some invisible force there. I've never seen a rainbow crash to the ground. So even though it's just spreading across the sky, there's some strength to it there. There's, some, there's something that's supporting it. And it, when it was applied to people, it meant they were committed. They were steadfast. They were stronger. They were more determined So think about this. Paul closed chapter 2 by praying for God to strengthen this church. And now in verse 3, he reminds them that God will be faithful to do that. God will strengthen you all because he's faithful. You know, sometimes we use this phrase, unanswered prayers. I know what we mean by that, so I'm not being picky on the terminology. But technically, God answers every prayer. Sometimes the answer is just no. Sometimes the answer is not right now. But if you ask God to strengthen you spiritually, to establish you, to help you be a more committed servant for him and for our church as a whole, that's a prayer that he will always say yes to. He's faithful Do you think God wouldn't strengthen us to serve him better if we humbly asked for that? And the second aspect about God's faithfulness here, Paul says at the end of the verse, he will keep you from evil. Really? Is that true? Do bad things not happen to Christians? Be honest, that doesn't seem correct on the surface. The recipients of this letter were suffering for their faith. God didn't guard them from that evil. So what did Paul mean? It's crucial to understand that this does not refer to generic evil in the sense of bad things happening. We all know too well that Christians are not immune to troubles in this world. Whatever that may be. This phrase is more specific. Literally, the, f- the phrase is not just evil, but the evil. And even probably better, the evil one. I think most modern translations catch that and translate that, the evil one. This is the exact expression Jesus used to end his famous prayer when he said, deliver us from evil. It's deliver us from the evil One. He said the same thing in John 17, 15. Jesus prayed to the Father, I do not ask that you take them, his disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Well, that makes sense. Because we know that Christians don't have some sort of magic power that deflects evil off their lives like Teflon. We don't have some spiritual force field around us that keeps bad things from happening, but we do have a a God that guards us from Satan. We do have a God that keeps us from the evil one. Not only are our eternal spirits eternally secure in Christ, there's nothing Satan can do about that. Nothing. But even in this life, God has not less, uh, left us defenseless against Him. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul taught that God has given us His whole armor so that we can withstand Satan and his, his schemes. Some of the things that Paul mentioned there in Ephesians 6 that we have at our disposal that guard us, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, Faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer, the Holy Spirit. God gave us all of those and they protect you from the devil. Here's another prayer that God in his faithfulness will always say yes to. God, guard me from Satan. God, don't let Satan ruin my life. Don't let him ruin my witness. Do not let Satan harm this church. Please, let's trust God to be faithful to strengthen us and guard us from the evil one. God's faithful. But the faithfulness of God does not excuse us from obedience. Right? Look at verse 4. We don't get to be lifeless puppets. We still have our part. Verse 4, Paul said, And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. With God's faithful, faithfulness in mind, will we be faithful to Him? Paul was assured that the Thessalonians would. He had this settled confidence and this ongoing confidence that the Lord, uh, this confidence in the Lord that they would continue to obey and keep the commands they've been given and even probably some that are coming up later in this chapter. And I, This... This is an interesting thought I had studying this sermon that this Paul's confidence, you can sort of look at that from two perspectives. And from Paul's point of view, this confidence in their obedience would help him. It it would help his zeal for his ministry. And I think it's very similar to the first letter. You remember he sent Timothy to check on these believers to make sure they were still serving, to see how they were doing because they were suffering persecution. And when Timothy returned with a good report, oh man, he he had a renewed zeal for his work for the Lord because of their faithfulness and their obedience. That's that's natural. Of course their obedience would encourage him. It, It does a preacher's heart good to know that the people are spiritually growing, that they're faithfully following what he has taught them from God's Word. Paul was no different. So this confidence would, would help him, but also wouldn't it help the Thessalonians? From their perspective, would it not make them feel good and, and provide some positive motivation to know that, you know, Paul believes in us. Paul, Paul has an expectation that, we're, that we'll be able to keep on. What if a terrible football team was going to play a powerhouse? And their coach said, guys, I'm confident y'all are going to get whipped this weekend. But let's go play hard. What is that lack of confidence going to do for their team's motivation? It's going to deflate like a balloon, right? Coach Thornton doesn't even believe in us. You know, what's the point? I'm not implying Paul was using what we call coach speak um, to, to try and pump them up in a phony manner, even though he knew it was really unrealistic. It's not like that, but it is godly encouragement for them. It's positive feedback for their current obedience, confidence, and their continued obedience. I think sometimes pastors can get so focused on, I don't know, maybe fixing problems or dealing with issues or, or worrying about issues that aren't even issues or that they neglect to praise the people and commend them for the obedience that they are doing. And I don't want to be a pastor like that. So I want to say to North Bryant that I'm impressed. I'm impressed with your past obedience. Your love and your generosity, your hunger for God's Word. There's so many things about this congregation that are praiseworthy, and it encourages me and like Paul, I'm also confident in your future obedience. Not in an arrogant way uh, to think that we could never fail. But we serve a God who can't fail. So if we remain humble and faithful to Him, we'll be okay. And as we obey, what we don't want to have happen in verse 5, is we never want our obedience to become this cold, dry emotionless task of rule following where there is no love. We don't want our, our service for God, we don't want our worship services to morph into this legalistic, ritualistic thing that lacks love where we become like those first century Jews during Jesus' day. Love and obedience go together. Look at verse 5. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Paul words this sort of like a prayer wish. He's praying to God. It's his desire that God directs their hearts into the love of God. The love of God's an interesting expression because it's debated. Some commentators view this as referring to God's love for us. Others view it as a reference of our love for God. Hey, Well, which is it? One of the past Greek teachers at the seminary, Brother Vining, he used this phrase, purposely ambiguous. Grammatically, could be either one. You could make it either argument. And I read this quote along those lines, which I love. This one author said, "...the apostles availed themselves of the vagueness, or rather the comprehensiveness of language." to express a great spiritual truth and that both meanings are so combined and interwoven that it is very seldomly possible where the expression occurs to separate the one from the other. Do we need God to direct our hearts more into his love or direct our hearts into loving him more? Yeah. In fact, those things are so interconnected. Do you remember what the apostle John wrote in 1 John? He said, we love because he first loved us. It's really tough to separate those two out. As God directs our hearts into his love, we comprehend more of that. We understand more of that. It should naturally motivate us to love him more, love others more, obey him more because of it. So sure. And the next phrase is, is similar. Into the patient waiting for Christ. What well, was Paul praying for God to help them patiently wait for Christ? or for them to be patient like Christ. Sure. Or maybe he was just purposely ambiguous. Another quote, this author said, the steadfast endurance displayed by the master must challenge them to have this same characteristic wrought in their own lives. A better English word for patience here would be steadfastness, endurance, or perseverance. Perseverance. Because this word patience did not describe someone who could sit in a waiting room and not be anxious. It, this was not passive waiting around, but it's that word that meant to bear up under the load. It's, it's the enduring word, and it, perseverance and steadfastness. So you think about that. Continuing to obey God in this world where not all men have faith it takes some love and endurance, Continuing to obey God when unreasonable and wicked men make that difficult, it takes some love and some perseverance. If you don't love God and you don't have some Christ-like endurance, don't be surprised when you give up. Don't be surprised when you quit when you face difficulties. Don't be surprised when you stop coming to church. Don't be surprised when you stop reading your Bible. Don't be surprised when you stop serving when things aren't easy without any love and without any endurance. Paul didn't want that for the Thessalonians, not in their own lives, not as a church. And this wasn't just some empty wish, right? Because they were already being persecuted. So Paul prays for this persecuted group of people to have some love and endurance, that God would direct them into that so that they would be faithful to the God who was always faithful to them. They had some good examples to look to, didn't they? Paul's a pretty good example of continuing to serve out of love and endurance, even when things get tough. Paul never stopped. Persecutions never stopped him. He loved God. He loved the gospel. He loved others enough to just keep going. I pray that we'll do the same. Personally and as a body. As a body no matter what we face in this world. Love God and endure. If we're here just to be seen by others, if we're here just to go through the motions, but we're not actually loving what we do, loving why we do it, and loving who we're doing it for, don't be surprised when there's no staying power. Thank God that Jesus Christ did not quit when it got tough. When he was betrayed, abandoned, arrested, falsely accused, beaten, and even crucified. He didn't quit. Why? He didn't deserve any of that. Love and endurance. He loved the Father and He loved you enough to persevere. He displayed the endurance necessary to face everything that was unjustly thrown His way and He did it for you, which again goes back to the statement the Lord is faithful. If you're hearing my voice this morning and you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins, And wash you in the blood of Jesus as your Savior. I'm praying that you'll do that this morning. Jesus died for you. He loves you. He endured for you. And He is faithful to you. If you ask Him to save you, He will say yes. Let's pray that God directs our hearts into love and endurance so that we can be faithful to the one who's always faithful to us let's stand let's bow for a word of prayer father thank you so much for your faithfulness I pray that you'll direct our hearts into your love and into Christ like endurance I pray that the gospel spreads rapidly throughout this world I pray that you'll deliver your people from wicked and unreasonable men. I pray that we'll have the courage, even if that's not your plan, to keep going and keep serving. Lord, establish us, strengthen us, guard us from Satan, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.